Margie, I'm looking forward to our discussion today where we're really going to focus on trade and what we're seeing not only in the global trade environment, but also on the U.S. I think a lot of our topics are going to go over digital taxes, our China relations, what we're seeing in the U.K., and also with the Biden administration and their outlook on trade. And Julie, as we all know, it's people that make the policy. So let's join everyone together and let's talk tax and trade. You're listening to Tap into Tax, PwC's podcast series covering current regulatory, legislative, and technology hot topics through the lens of our technical leaders, as well as process and technology subject matter specialists. This podcast features discussions with some of our leading minds around tax, trade, and domestic policy. Stay tuned to our regular updates and subscribe to our series to get notified as new episodes are published. Welcome listeners. This is Julie Allen. I am PwC's National Tax Service Leader and M&A National Practice Leader. And joining me today is my co-host, Margie Dengeshaw, PwC's U.S. Tax Reporting and Strategy and East Region Leader. On today's episode of Tap into Tax, we're excited to welcome Scott McCandless, a principal in the Tax Policy Services Group of PwC's Washington National Tax Services, and Jeremiah Coder, a director in our Global Tax Policy Group based in Washington, D.C. Scott and Jeremiah are here today to discuss the trade environment and its implications for businesses. Many of you may be familiar with Scott's voice as he is the co-host of PwC's Policy on Demand series. And we are also happy to welcome back Jeremiah Coder, who was with us on our last episode about tax sustainability and governance. Thank you both for joining us today and welcome to Tap Into Tax. Thank you both for having us. Appreciate it. Great to be here. Okay, so to begin today, do you mind giving us a rundown of the trade environment that businesses are in right now. And Scott, let me come over to you if you would give us that rundown. Sure, Julie, thank you very much. And thank you to everyone who's listening today. Uh, it's quite a dynamic trade environment in which we find ourselves now, as you might expect. We still have an enormous issue with regard to the relationship between the United States and China. And of course, that has developed quite dramatically in the last few years. There's always been a, a bit of a tension between those two countries, both pro-business and very positive in terms of growth, but also somewhat wary in terms of the ways in which that relationship can sometimes be strained. And of course, that has been heightened over the last few years with an increase in the use of tariffs started by the U.S., but really with some retaliatory action by China as well. And there's a big question as to exactly where that may be headed. We'll get into that a little bit deeper later on, but there's a bit of a management of expectations game going on as we're entering a new phase, a new period with a new administration, and wondering about the extent to which the ship of state may steer in a new direction. We'll get into that a little more deeply. That's one of the key issues. The other is with regard to the USMCA, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement. In some ways, it's almost remarkable that it is less remarked. Uh, USMCA represents an incredible change. For 25 years, we had NAFTA in place for all the advantages that it gave to trade and perhaps for all the slings and arrows that, that were visited upon it over the last two and a half decades. It became a bit of a political punching bag. It was finally replaced. And there's a brand new agreement that went into force last July. Of course, that too is not without its challenges. And one of the major ones is the way in which the U.S. government and U.S. businesses and international businesses still are reacting to the pandemic 
And that includes government agencies and government enforcement, such as Customs and Border Protection and the way in which they are trying to navigate the new USMCA world, making it somewhat difficult for practitioners to navigate that world. There are still some some sea legs that need to be gained as we understand exactly where USMCA may be going. And then in the even a little bit deeper down in terms of trade issues, there's the issue with regard to export controls and the flow of investment across borders, particularly in an increasingly technological space and the extent to which technology has both incredible economic benefits and broadly across society, as well as potential risks and the extent to which technology might allow someone to peer into the business world of, of another that you don't want to uh, have exposed. So there are a variety of controls that have been put in place, are still in place, and the extent to which those may change are also very much top of mind. So those are the key things that we're watching, George. And Scott, on the tax side, trade still continues to make a big splash here. The OECD continues to try to find an international consensus on how to address some of the tax issues arising from the digitalizing economy. But even apart from that, the big thing here is that countries continue to take unilateral measures. And as you said, that has resulted in some tariff response and uh, a lot of discussions, both within the U.S. and elsewhere, as to how to resolve these. So uh, that is a continuing theme that we'll see until I think the new administration, as you said, gets its sea legs and provides some additional guidance here. Jeremiah, let's dive a little deeper into that point. Digital service taxes is a hot topic. So what are we seeing right now regarding digital taxes? Thanks, Margie. It's a great question. Digital services taxes, as you say, continue to proliferate. Right now, out of the 37 OECD countries, there are about 20 different jurisdictions in which they're either enacted or proposed unilateral measures, sometimes along the basis of what we have seen with the the French DST. Um, Others take a little bit of different approach. But regardless, it is an ever-present issue now for companies who, regardless of where they are doing business in the world, are having to confront the slate of these new measures, which come with, you know, fairly onerous compliance spurts and challenges. Now, will we see them abate in the near future? That's a great question simply because, in part, we have to see what the OECD will achieve regarding an international consensus. Certainly, they are looking to try to find a global solution with a political agreement by the July G20 finance ministers meeting. But beyond that, I think what we'll continue to see pressures here in this intersection of tax and trade, because even if the OECD does reach a consensus, and as part of that would seemingly require countries to roll back their existing DSTs. I think the pressures in this space are we're going to continue to see countries try to find ways in which to make sure that companies are paying the so-called fair share, even in spite of any international agreement. So what we have seen is the EU is considering a digital levy, and they say that this would be different than what the OECD Pillar 1 would achieve. And so I think we're already seeing that countries are going to be trying to find creative ways in which to apply new types of taxes to digital services and and related activities. And we're going to really have to see how effective the OECD can be as a global standard setter. Excellent, Jeremiah. That was a good overview of the international landscape. So now let's talk about the U.S. What's going on in the U.S.? 
Marjorie, it's a unique time because with the new administration, there is an opportunity for a reset here. And certainly Secretary Yellen has expressed a desire for strong multilateral engagement, both at the OECD and G20 levels. The previous administration put a lot of weight on tariffs as a deterrent on this issue. And while it certainly continues to be a bipartisan issue in which both Republicans and Democrats are very aware of what is happening in the world on this issue and and want to make sure that U.S. companies are not targeted, whether tariffs as as sanctions will continue to be the go-to, we'll have to wait and see because certainly there are a number of other remedies in the U.S.'s toolbox that could also be used. Jeremiah, it's an excellent point about what's going on from U.S. perspective. And really, there's quite a bit of uncertainty on the home front as well. There are a couple of issues that give the Biden administration a bit of a headache here. One is that the previous administration conducted investigations through the U.S. Trade Representative's office and found that these digital services taxes do discriminate against U.S. companies and, in so finding, gave the administration the power to impose tariffs on goods from those countries if it so chose. However, the prior administration declined to take that next step, leaving it to the current administration to figure out what to do. It essentially has this tool already aimed, if it wants to, to fire it in the form of tariffs. However, what we saw at the end of December was a really interesting play out, and I think it might give them pause as to whether tariffs would even be effective. There were tariffs set to go into effect against France for its DST starting on January 6th of this year. But in December, France announced that it was going ahead with its DST anyway seemingly concluding that even though it it was potentially about to face a couple billion dollars worth of tariffs on its goods going into the United States, that that cost was still worth it in terms of imposing its DST domestically in France. So that might give some pause to the idea of using tariffs. Now, the Trump administration on January 6th declined to go ahead and impose those uh, tariffs on France. So that didn't actually happen, but it still could if they want to. That is still live if they want to use that. But I think it's uh, making the Biden administration think long and hard about whether tariffs would even be effective in trying to directionally move other countries away from their DST implementation plans, which again creates an enormous amount of uncertainty. And I think brings us full circle back to your original point, Jeremiah, that this all needs to be discussed, debated, and potentially resolved to the best extent possible at the OECD. And so, Scott, I think that really takes us over. You've highlighted U.S. and France, and you've highlighted these tariffs and what we can look for there. But what should clients who have U.K. operations be on the lookout for? Julie, it's a great question. The U.K. seems to have finally found a little bit of its footing. Obviously, it had gone through Brexit. And then all of 2020 was involved in a negotiation between the U.K. and the EU in terms of the terms of that Brexit, what trade between those two entities would look like in that post-Brexit world. And they got right down to the deadline and finally managed to resolve something before the end of the calendar year last year when the when the deadline was. Uh, so now they've managed to put in place an agreement on cooperation over economic, social, environmental, even fisheries, which was an incredibly hotly contested issue, seems to have finally settled down. There will probably be some issues with those going forward, but trade between the U.K. and the EU has finally stabilized after a period of intense uncertainty. That's not to say that all questions are answered, but relative to where we have been over the last couple of years, they're in much better shape. And the UK prospects are, are quite good for a deal with the United States. Uh, there are ongoing free trade negotiations between the United States and the UK. Uh, they were progressing very nicely last year after starting early in the summer of last year 
they ramped up very quickly. And but for the U.S. elections on the U.S. side and this negotiation with the EU on the U.K. side, they might have even been able to conclude last year. They were going extremely well. Now, the issue is really out of the U.K.'s hands at this point. Negotiations look like they could progress to the point where we could have a U.S.-U.K. deal. However, the problem, again, not the U.K.'s problem, it's a U.S. problem. There is a congressional rule called Trade Promotion Authority, which expires on July 1st. Trade Promotion Authority, or TPA, likely will need to be renewed in order to set up the procedures by which Congress would approve or consider approval of any new free trade agreement. And until that TPA question is resolved in Congress, then the US, UK, or any other free trade agreement will probably have to wait. Again, it's a procedural mechanism, but it's an extremely important one because it is somewhat outcome determinative. So unless they can get a US, UK deal done and through Congress before July 1st, which seems unlikely despite the uh, significant and beneficial progress, then we're going to have to solve the TPA problem in the US before US, UK can truly be concluded. So timing is important. And as of the date of this recording, we're in the end of February. So we're about a month into the Biden administration. And we've talked about the recent trends in the U.S.-China trade relationship. What can we expect to see between these two countries going forward? Well, I think the use of the word expectation is extremely important because managing expectations here has been difficult. I think there has been a lot of assumptions over the last several months, you know, really maybe six months or so, that merely changing the administration in, in Washington, D.C. would mean, if not a wholesale change of the U.S.-China relationship, then at least a uh, cessation of the use of tariffs. And I think that that may turn out to be true in the long run, but in the short term, the tariffs remain. Now, we are somewhat fortunate that we're recording this while the nomination hearing is ongoing for the U.S. trade representative, Catherine Tai former Democratic Trade Counsel for the Ways and Means Committee, is before the Senate Finance Committee undergoing her hearing for confirmation, and she will have to take over these reins. But so far, both she as well as the administration has been signaling that we will remain fairly status quo while they figure things out, while they try to decide what leverage they might have vis-a-vis the U.S. and China, what leverage the U.S. might have with its allies vis-a-vis China. And until they get that all sorted out as to how united a front they can present to China and on what issues, then I think we're going to remain in a situation where tariffs will stay in place. And perhaps the only real opening for change in the short term might be at the edges. And specifically, what I'm thinking of is the exemption process. There is a process by which you can petition the U.S. Trade Representative's office to either have a diminished effect or remove your particular products entirely from the list of those that are subject to sanctions. And that might be expanded in the short term in order to allow some flexibility while the Biden administration figures out the much bigger macro picture as to exactly what it wants to do and where it wants to stand with regard to China. Remember, there there has been little political downside domestically in the United States to uh, making China kind of the bad guy. And uh, I think that's true in a bipartisan way. And I think that they need to figure out how to both reestablish strong business and political relationships with Beijing, while at the same time managing the expectations of constituencies in the United States that don't necessarily look upon those outcomes favorably. So that's a tough line to walk. And both uh, President Biden, as well as likely to be U.S. Trade Representative Tsai, are going to have quite a challenge ahead of them. So, Scott, with everything we've discussed, you know, we've gone over Brexit, DST, U.S.-China relations, along with the recent inauguration of President Biden and the flexibility his administration may have, what developments are on the horizon for the U.S.-EU trade relationship? Sure. Great question, Julie. So, 
the EU presented the United States with an interesting issue at the end of 2020 when the EU signed an investment agreement. Now, this is not a full-blown free trade agreement, but it's an investment agreement with China. And there was a bit of a public relations issue where the Biden administration had reached out to the EU and said, hey, look, we're just about to come into power here. Can you delay that investment treaty with China until we can figure out where we might stand and maybe we can work together on this? And the EU declined and, and just went ahead with its investment relationship with China. Since then, however, the Biden administration seems to have gained a little more sure-footedness with its relationship with the European Union. And the two sides are now talking about presenting a more united front on some technological issues, such as with regard to semiconductors and some other sectors, just in terms of general regulatory policy, nothing very specific. And I certainly don't want to overstate the extent to which there are any new trade changes in those areas, but just that they're looking for ways in which they can cooperate and, and try to help have China be on a similar page. But then with regard to the US-EU relationship itself, there too, the US and EU had been pursuing some kind of trade agreement, ideally a free trade agreement, somewhat like we talked about with the US and UK. But that stumbled a little bit because the EU so far had been unwilling to put agricultural tariffs on the table. And that's something that's very important to many US interests, including at the time, then Finance Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley, who comes from Iowa. So you can imagine that agriculture was a key issue. And if that remains off the table, it might be difficult to negotiate something that looks like a full-blown free trade agreement between the U.S. and the EU. But hopefully those relationships will continue to be strong in other areas. And I think really the only other potential disruptor is what Jeremiah has been talking about with regard to many jurisdictions within the EU that have been contemplating and even going forward with digital services taxes. And I think that will remain the main wrinkle that will disrupt the potential for a U.S.-EU deal. Yeah, Scott, I agree that DSTs hang over all of this and any attempt to kind of overcome and, and reset between the U.S. and EU is going to have to first resolve what to do about the tax situation, just given the number of European countries that have already adopted DST measures that specifically do end up targeting American interests here. So we'll have to see if this gets resolved in part by the, the OECD. But beyond that, as I mentioned before, with the EU looking at a separate digital levy that would not be affected by Pillar 1, is that that too may also be deemed discriminatory as uh, likely a number of large U.S. tech companies are going to be in scope. And so I think this will continue to be a, a live issue for a very long time that probably vexes some of these other issues that Scott was mentioning here. So now that we've covered the globe and trade relations around the world, let's pivot and go closer to home. Specifically, Scott, the USMCA. Margie, thanks. I think the USMCA is just a fascinating political and policy development. I say that because uh, it was enacted or Congress finally approved it in late 2019 at a moment when partisanship might have been at a peak or maybe the other way to look at it is bipartisanship was very much on the wane. The relationship between Congress and specifically the House and the White House was strained at the best. That's being generous. And yet, USMCA sailed through at that political moment with an overwhelming vote, nearly 400 votes in the House, 89 votes in the 100-member Senate, overwhelming support, which I think shows that uh, it had been crafted in a very good way. I should note, by the way, that Catherine Tai, the, the person we mentioned who is currently going through her nomination process for to be the U.S. Trade Representative. She was heavily involved in that while she was trade counsel in the House, helped craft some of the provisions that allowed Democrats to get on board and make it such a bipartisan success. 
So her, the fact that she has that experience will be extremely helpful when she's in the role as USTR. So just note that as a, as a side takeaway. But the point about the overwhelming vote on the USMCA is that it comes out of the, the cradle here, as it were, with an incredibly solid foundation. It has very broad bipartisan support. That means that it is likely to be nurtured uh, or nurturable, I guess is one way to think about it. For the next few years, it will be given a lot of leeway to succeed. There's not necessarily one party or the other that is taking pot shots at it for political purposes. They're all in. Everybody held hands and jumped, essentially, and uh, is in this together. So I think that puts USMCA in a very special place, giving it a really good launch. And that is in contrast somewhat to what happened with NAFTA, or really when NAFTA came out of the gate and went live in 1994, it was already subject to a lot of criticism. USMCA may yet fall prey to some criticism, and I expect it will be in some quarters. But the fact that it came out of the gate so strong is really impressive. Now, like I said, there are already some issues that are starting to percolate. One of the main issues during its negotiation was the Mexico labor market. And there were some provisions in there that were designed to try to open up uh, transparency in the Mexico labor market, as well as to try to increase some of the value of the minimum wage, essentially, if you will, especially in the automotive sector in Mexico. The idea being that if you start to increase wages in Mexico, then perhaps you reduce some of the labor cost arbitrage, and that will eventually redound to the benefit of workers in the United States. However, there are provisions that allow the U.S. to, like I said, have transparency with Mexico, look into what's going on in Mexico, and potentially go after some of the actions that Mexico might be taking. And we've already heard noise that those avenues might be pursued. So we'll have to watch very closely the extent to which labor becomes a key issue, especially vis-a-vis the United States and Mexico within that larger North American context. So Scott and Jeremiah, this is a lot of information. And if I'm a tax director, I think my head would be spinning right now, right? That you could talk about all of these different things around the globe and also how it impacts the U.S. You could talk about this for quite a while. So what I would like to do is ask both of you, what should companies do? And can you give us your brief key takeaways on what actionable steps companies should be considering at this time? And Jeremiah, how about if I start off with you? And then Scott, if you would add your insight, that would be great. Okay, you're, you're right, Julie. There is a lot to digest here. And so I think the key takeaway for me and thinking about tech directors really should be communicating up to the C-suite because with every passing week, we get closer to some critical deadlines. And so companies really need to be thinking through proactively what their responses are going to be to some various scenario outcomes. One potential is that there is an OECD agreement on new international tax rules that are going to be quite a big jump from where we are today both with Pillar 1 on nexus and and allocation rules, and then uh, Pillar 2 for a a global minimum tax regime. And so in each of those situations, companies need to be prepared for what compliance looks like and the impact it would have on operations on a cross-border basis. Now, if the OECD doesn't reach agreement, the impact is going to be that we are going to continue to see more and more countries enact these unilateral measures. And that also puts you know, great pressure on a company to just understand its uh, growing liability in all these jurisdictions because pretty much every DST or unilateral measure is a bit of a permutation. And so just getting your arms around that compliance and administrative challenge is really key. And then the third possibility here is simply that even if the OECD does reach agreement, that again, as we discussed earlier, countries are going to continue to push forward in 
ways to come up with new taxes that fall outside of the OECD rubric. So regardless of where we end up in a few months, it really is critical for companies to be modeling and thinking through scenario planning as to how they might be impacted by any of these different scenarios. That's great, Jeremiah. I totally agree. I think that from an intra-company perspective, inside the company, what we often find is that if we go in to talk to a company and have a tax conversation, that there is an individual tasked specifically with the tax function of the company, a tax director or a tax VP who has their arms around the tax function. That is not always true with regard to trade. Sometimes tax might have visibility to an aspect of trade, perhaps an indirect tax that's coming through a customs tariff line. But the overall logistics and supply chain issues are are almost always outside of tax. And getting your arms around those functions and making sure that the C-suite understands all those different aspects of the functionality that touch on trade is extremely important. It's not always easy to do, to pull all those threads together from an intra-company perspective, but it's something that we highly recommend if you're not already doing that you try to get a handle on. So we think that can be incredibly beneficial to have all those voices at the table. And then with a, a more particular interest, I would suggest opening lines of communication with D.C., Like I said, the Biden administration and the new U.S. Trade Representative are in their early stages of trying to understand exactly what it is that they want to do. And you can help shape that a little bit to the extent that you can share your story very specific with regard to what's going on in your sector and what's going on with your footprint, both domestically in terms of states and districts where you have jobs and what the impact is on U.S. jobs from your business and from trade relationships, but also globally, where you're operating, why it's important that you have operations internationally to be close to customers and for other reasons, telling your story and helping the new administration figure out its policy based on those stories can be incredibly impactful. I would not underestimate the ability, uh, especially at this early stage as they're trying to get their footing to help them figure out where to place those feet and where to take those steps. Scott, Jeremiah, thank you for joining us today to discuss the global trade environment that is rapidly changing and there's a lot for everybody to keep their eye on. We also want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today. We have more to come in our Tap into Tax podcast series as we continue to share insights about the challenges and opportunities that organizations are facing right now. Thank you all and have a great day. podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.